to you by me, author Liz Harfel. Country Women's Wisdom is a podcast sharing inspiring true stories, treasured vintage recipes and useful household hints. It draws on the practical know-how and everyday experience of Australian women, taking on lessons hard won from living through world wars, economic depression, natural disaster, isolation and personal tragedy. They learnt how to make a little go a long way while nurturing themselves and their families. In this episode, I'm going to share with you the stories of three women who harnessed their skills as very capable home cooks to raise money for Australian troops serving overseas during the First and Second World Wars. That was the sound that echoed through the valley where I live at dawn this morning. Every year, Australians usually gather in their thousands on the morning of April 25th to commemorate Anzac Day, a special day in our calendar set aside to honour the men and women who have served our country in times of war. This year, because of the coronavirus, we couldn't participate in public ceremonies, so instead we gathered at the end of our driveways. In the little town where I live, a small number of volunteers still organised the dawn service and it was possible to hear the sound of the bugler playing the last post from outside my house. No matter how many times I hear it, the last post brings tears to my eyes as I think of all the men and women who lost their lives serving on the front line. But in this episode, The Anzac Spirit at Home, I want to focus on an aspect of war often overlooked in our storytelling and that is the quiet, everyday contributions made by wives and mothers, daughters and sisters who were left at home.
When the First World War broke out in August 1914, Annie King was hard at work compiling a cookbook to raise funds for mission work. Born in the inner Sydney suburb of Redfern in 1858, Annie trained as a teacher and served at schools in Maitland and Albury before marrying in her mid-thirties. She and her husband John later settled down on a dairy farm in the Richmond River area of northern New South Wales, where they raised four sons. While John devoted his energies to breeding prize-winning cattle and the local agricultural society, Annie built a reputation for being a fine cook, winning numerous prizes at local shows for her baking and preserves. A keen churchwoman throughout most of her life, she also served as a deaconess in the Church of England and showed a particular interest in mission work. Deciding that harnessing her skills and knowledge in the kitchen was one of the best ways she could help, Annie set about creating the Australian Missionary Cookery Book. The outbreak of the war delayed her efforts until she and her helpers became motivated by reports flooding Australian newspapers about atrocities carried out by the Germans as they stormed their way through Belgium. Australians threw themselves into providing relief aid to their Belgian allies through a national fund. Initial efforts culminated on the 14th of May 1915, which authorities declared as Belgian Day, encouraging communities to contribute by organising fundraising activities. Annie and a band of supporters decided to produce a smaller version of her cookbook than originally intended, so it would be ready in time. The entire proceeds from the first issue of 5,000 copies were diverted to what they referred to as the Belgian need. The Evening News urged all good housewives in Sydney to look out for the cookbook and its distinctive colour cover featuring the crossed flags of Belgium and Australia. Within a short time, the collection of simple, practical and up-to-date recipes raised more than £300. War was still raging three years later when the modest but very gratified Annie finished work on a second edition. It was expanded to include 180 more tried and good recipes. This time it was published under the title The Carry On Cookery Book, based around a catchphrase that aimed to reinvigorate flagging spirits after five long years of war. It may well have had special meaning to Annie, too. Her eldest son, James, had been invalided home from France in 1917 after serving as a stretcher-bearer. He was physically intact, but suffered from shell shock. If the war had continued much longer, her remaining sons would all have reached the age when they, too, were eligible to serve. This cookbook went on to sell more than 30,000 copies before Annie died in 1950 at the age of 92. It was still in print five years later, when a 13th edition was produced to raise money for the Totally and Permanently Disabled Soldiers Association, to who she gave copyright. The second woman I would like to tell you about was also a schoolteacher. Her name was Ella Cleggett. Ella grew up on a farm near Mount Barker in the Adelaide Hills, not very far from where I live today. Keen to support the war effort, she became actively involved in a school-based patriotic fund. Among the causes it supported was a sanatorium established in the Adelaide Hills for returned servicemen suffering from tuberculosis, also known as TB, or consumption. Not many people realise Australian soldiers fighting in Europe during the First World War were putting their lives at risk from more than bullets and shellfire. 
Living in close proximity, often in extremely cold and wet conditions, they also face the increased likelihood of contracting tuberculosis. By 1917, authorities were warning that caring for all the men being sent home from the front with this potentially deadly infection would be a significant challenge. In South Australia, a dedicated Tuberculous Soldiers Aid Society was set up to lobby politicians to help build a special camp so patients could recuperate in the warm, dry air of the Flinders Ranges. Leading the charge was Ella a tall brunette known for her dedication and determination, and a woman whose story I find particularly inspiring. Ella visited the sanatorium every week, serving afternoon tea and organising entertainments to distract the men from their troubles. But it wasn't long before she realised that cake and concerts were not going to suffice. Many of the patients would never be fit enough to return to their previous jobs, leaving them and their families in dire straits, even if they did qualify for a war pension. When the AIDS Society was formed in 1921 to provide relief, Ella took up the position of Honorary Secretary. Four years later, she resigned from teaching and began to work for them in a full-time position they created especially for her. Ella's extraordinary contribution over the next 35 years earned her an MBE, as well as the undying appreciation of everyone that she helped. Known affectionately as Clegg or Auntie Cleggett, she treated tubercular soldiers like her brothers, despite the stigma often attached to this disease, and she took a personal interest in their welfare and the widows and the orphans they left behind. Ella also worked tirelessly to generate funds for the society, which was still caring for 750 men in the mid-1950s. By the time she died in 1960 at the age of 75, Ella had raised more than £250,000. That was an extraordinary amount of money for the time. And a great deal of it went to support her favourite project, which was a hostel set up in the Flinders Ranges at Angerichina. The sprawling outback complex of chalets and wards, with its own dispensary, was built between Blinman and Parachilna on land donated by owners of the Angerichina station. Officially opened by Governor Sir Tom Bridges in 1927, the hostel operated until the 1970s, providing winter respite to hundreds of tubercular sufferers and their families. Patients could sit in the sun, or if they were well enough, gradually rebuild their strength by doing light work in the hostel's vegetable garden, raising chickens, milking cows, or making furniture from local red gum. I became familiar with the story of the hostel and of Ella Cleggett when I discovered a cookery book at a community market. The Anger Richener cookery book was among the fundraising efforts which was organised to support the hostel and the organisation's work. I haven't been able to find out very much about it, but my edition was produced in 1963 and it caught my eye because it included something of Ella's story which is quite rare in a community cookbook and it also contained a recipe with which I was very familiar for an apricot slice made with apricot jam and a coconut crumble topping. It was a favourite in our household when I was a teenager, and my mother would make it almost every week. That recipe ended up in Tried, Tested and True. The third woman I'd like to tell you about is Sheila Wallace, who lived in Longreach in Queensland. In 1942, the Australian Red Cross Society branch in her town made headlines for its contribution to the war effort. 
Within 12 months of being formed the previous July, they'd signed up 400 members and raised £3,000, despite the challenges of distance and petrol rationing. This effort reflected not just the patriotism of the community, but the genuine fears that people in Queensland held about the war now raging across the Pacific. Australia, they felt, was in imminent danger of being invaded by Japan, and that meant that Queenslanders were living on the front line. The enemy is at our entrance gates, and soon he will be coming up the main drive to the front gate, the deputy chairman of the Longreach Shire Council warned a public meeting in February 1942. If anyone doubted the seriousness of the situation, that changed over the next few weeks as word spread that Singapore had fallen and the Japanese were dropping bombs on Darwin. Heeding calls for an all-in effort, Red Cross members at Longreach banded together to run an intensive and sustained program of fundraising activities. Members met weekly to sew and do other work, every Monday they sold cakes and produce, and once a month they held a street day. They ran afternoon teas and dinners, sheepdog trials and gymkhanas, fates and dances and raffles, baby and knitting competitions, and they were paid by the military to cook meals for servicemen passing through the town. They also broadcast a weekly program on the local radio station to promote their activities and encourage support. Guiding them through all these endeavours was their capable president, Sheila Wallace, whose husband, Thomas, was superintendent of the Longreach Base Hospital. Originally from Glasgow, Dr Wallace came to the town to work as a locum for just six weeks in 1913. He ended up staying for 37 years. He and Sheila married in 1923 and they had four children, including one son, Donald, who joined the RAF the year he turned 18. This promising young scholar was killed in action over New Guinea in August 1944. During the year or two before this devastating personal loss, Sheila was throwing her energies into helping to create one of Queensland's most successful fundraising cookbooks. Still in demand today, though it has been long out of print, the Red Cross recipe book was first released in October 1943. The idea was proposed by three women who acted as country organisers for the Longreach branch of the Red Cross. I can only tell you their surnames and the initials they went by because that is the way it was recorded in the newspapers of the day. They were a Mrs D M Archer, a Mrs W J McMaster and Miss H White. It was their job to keep in touch with members living on far-flung stations and encourage their support. They were already busy collecting recipes in December 1942 when they received official encouragement from a committee meeting to push ahead. Among the contributions they gathered up were recipes from American allies, most likely members of the United States Air Force squadrons who flew bombers out of the Longreach Airport between May and July that year. The Americans were billeted in the town's civic centre and Masonic temple and apparently adopted as surrogate sons by many local families. Recipes also came in from Brisbane after a notice appeared in the Courier Mail inviting people to make contributions. The process of putting together the cookbook proved to be a great deal of work. One of Sheila's daughters later recalled that she would come home from school to find recipes spread out all over the kitchen table while her mother helped put the book together. Former branch member and keen local historian Eva Tyndale understands that a local couple, Mr and Mrs George Avery, also contributed to the book by donating money towards the cost of printing the first edition. According to a note from Sheila at the front of the cookbook, wartime restrictions on paper supplies forced the compilers to squeeze the recipes into less space by removing the names of the donors, which is usually a feature of community cookbooks. 
However, Sheila wrote that she hoped the book would be of great help to our women folk, who with faith and courage must ever carry on in their own homes, and trusting that by purchasing this book they will derive much pleasure from the knowledge that they have helped to give ease to the suffering and comfort to the many in their darkest hour of need. The cookbook received high praise from newspapers when it was released, with the Queensland Country Life suggesting it would make an ideal Christmas gift. They wrote, The compiler's aim was to make available to busy and often inexperienced cooks who are working under great difficulties in the country a comprehensive list of easy-to-follow, economical and healthful recipes. In this they have succeeded. By June 1944, it had raised hundreds of pounds. A larger revised edition followed in 1946. Sales were still strong, so a third edition of 8,000 copies followed in 1950. At some stage, most likely around the 1970s, divisional headquarters of the Red Cross took over printing and distributing the book, with the branch experiencing difficulty raising enough money to cover the costs. The ninth and final edition appeared in 1993, a remarkable 50 years after the first. It's only appropriate that I end this episode with my favourite version of one of Australia's most popular biscuits, the Anzac biscuit. Now the origins of this recipe still remain something of a mystery, although food historians tend to agree that it's probably related to the British Parkin. What we do know is that around this period, a lot of recipes were given patriotic names. One of the earliest examples that I've come across is a cookbook that was compiled by Ivy Stevenson from Launceston in Tasmania. It raised money for the Red Cross and it came out to be sold at something known as the Commercial Traveller's Patriotic Carnival, an event held in October 1915. The cookbook is full of recipes that have been renamed in honour of the occasion. They include things like the Gallipoli sausage and Paris rissoles. There's even Tommy's in their dugouts and Kitchener pudding. Or if you don't fancy that, how about Belgian meringues or Corporal's kisses? There's no sign of anything like an Anzac biscuit, but you get the general idea. For those not familiar with the word, the term Anzac stands for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. The acronym came into popular use in 1915, around the time of the Gallipoli landings. The first time the word Anzac was applied to a recipe, as far as we know at this stage, came along in June 1916. It was a recipe for Anzac ginger biscuits, and it was submitted by a Mrs M Sutherland to the Perth Sunday paper, The Times. Then in 1917, a fundraising cookbook was produced in Sydney to raise money for the Comfort Fund. The War Chest Cookery Book has what is recognised today as the first recipe published in a public cookbook with the title Anzac Biscuit. However, it bears absolutely no resemblance to what we know as the Anzac Biscuit today. In fact, it's an awful lot more like a Monte Carlo, made by joining two biscuits with raspberry jam and topping them with a white icing. I was fascinated by this recipe, which is quite delicious, and ended up reworking it for modern cooks and using it in Tried, Tested and True, where I tell the story of the woman who contributed the recipe, Alice Anderson. I've only just discovered in recent days, with a little more research, that the recipe bears a very striking resemblance to another recipe widely published in the 1890s and early 1900s as German biscuits. You can see why Alice might want to change the name for this cookbook. But back to the version that we all know and love today. 
My favourite version of this recipe is associated with the Panola Show Society in the Limestone Coast region of South Australia, and I came across it when I was researching my very first book, The Blue Ribbon Cookbook. The recipe is used by children who enter the Anzac Biscuit Competition at the show. The competition is judged every year by volunteers from the local RSL branch who provide the sponsorship. The first time the competition was held, the volunteers were sent along to the show hall and shown over to the enormous number of entries by the cooking convener, who decided to leave them to it. When she came back, all of the biscuits had gone. They'd sat down and eaten every single one, just leaving a few crumbs on the plate, so there was nothing to go on show when the hall opened later that day. I love this story and laugh out loud almost every time I think of it. Needless to say, when the volunteers returned the next year, a steward was put in charge of keeping a very close eye on them. Let me walk you through this recipe, as sanctioned by the Panola RSL. One cup of rolled oats. One cup of plain flour. One cup of firmly packed brown sugar. Half a cup of desiccated coconut. 125 grams of butter. Two tablespoons of golden syrup. One tablespoon of water and half a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda. To make the biscuits, preheat your oven to 160 degrees in a conventional oven or as low as 140 in a fan-forced oven. Grease some oven trays and line them with baking paper. Now sift the cup of plain flour and combine it with one cup of rolled oats, the cup of firmly packed brown sugar and the half a cup of desiccated coconut. In a small saucepan, Combine the 125 grams of butter, two tablespoons of golden syrup and the water and stir that over a low heat until it's smooth and the butter is melted. Now for the fun bit and one of the reasons why so many children love making this recipe. Add the bicarbonate of soda to the butter mixture and it will froth up and foam away. Then stir it into the dry ingredients. Roll level tablespoons of the mixture into balls Place them about five centimetres apart on the trays so there's plenty of room for them to spread and flatten them just slightly. It will take about 20 minutes for them to cook. It's really important to let them cool on the trays because they'll be quite soft when you take them out of the oven, but once they're cool, they'll start to firm up. Depending on your family preferences, you'll want them to be a little bit chewy and that will be a little less cooking time. But if you're like me and you're influenced by show cooks, a biscuit always has to snap so leave them in there a little longer. Although this recipe is very closely associated with Anzac Day and April in Australia, they make a delicious accompaniment for a cuppa any time of the year, so hopefully you'll give them a try sometime soon if you haven't already. And if you want to know more about the history of this fascinating biscuit, then I would suggest that you try and get hold of a copy of a book published by South Australian food historian Alison Reynolds. It's called Anzac Biscuits, The Power and the Spirit of an Everyday National Icon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Country Women's Wisdom. For more information about the podcast and my books, and for a copy of any of the recipes featured, please visit my website, lizharful.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.